You were talking about the trajectory, and so that kind of brings up one of the questions I had. Um, is my question is, and again, you can't predict the future. History is proves you can't predict what will happen. But from my own viewpoint, when I look at evangelicalism, it seems to be dying only because my my set of friends and the younger people that my children are with, they've all left it. If they haven't left the faith of Christianity entirely, they've left behind evangelicalism. But there are still parts of it that are growing so strong. So I would be yes. interested in yes. what you think a likely future for it is. Oh, yeah. Well, as, as you rightly noted, and we'll all just acknowledge, none of us knows the future. But um, since you ask, again, trying to um, honor the question, for, first of all, I think it's important to um, step back for a moment and think about the gl- literally the global picture. And the fact is that evangelical expressions of what can rightly be considered Evangelical expressions of Christianity are literally exploding in the Southern Hemisphere. Latin America, Africa, portions of Asia. And this is no secret. I mean, this has been a mantra for the last at least 20 years that um, observant Christians, sociologists, observers of religion, well, you know, the, the, the gravitational pull of is shifting to the southern hemisphere. So um, and and the, the the forms of Christianity that are thriving most uh, that are the most thriving in the southern hemisphere are generally speaking, for lack of a better word, various forms of evangelical Christianity. It's not the so-called tall steeple, high liturgical necessarily that we think of. Um, not that there aren't evangelicals or liturgical, that, that'll be another matter. But just to say, the forms of Christianity that are flourishing in the Southern Hemisphere are by and large evangelical in character. So, so I think part of the reason, and, and when I'm with fellow evangelicals and we, we talk about this, um, I think evangelicals need to ask them, do a little soul searching, so to speak, about. So if if we've been here and we've had, uh, you you indicated earlier that you know evangelicals haven't been kind of on the persecuted margins of society. Um, I think we need to take ownership to some extent of the current situation, however one describes that. Um, that that we've had a hand in it. Um, And, of course, myself standing within evangelicalism, I think there's a combination of two sides here. I think there's a lot of things that people do in the name of evangelical Christianity or just in the name of Christianity that are really wrongheaded and stupid (laughs) and I wish they wouldn't do. And I think there are some people who are outside, would, would self-identify outside of Christianity, who, who seem to be almost dispositionally incapable of a moderately reasonable understanding of, of what, is being, what is being said. And so I, I, think there's, I think there's plenty of shared responsibility here um, for in it, what... It, in the current public eye is the very troubled 
kind of state of evangelicalism. No, thanks. I what's the what is the book by the way? Um, is it called the New Even? Uh, what's it called? So a guy from Baylor, um, Baylor University, wrote a book. He's a sociologist, I believe, about the ri- the rise of oh Christianity. Stark. No, he wrote the rise uh, of Christianity. Right. In um, who's the one that wrote? It's going to come to me later. I'm going to look okay. this up. Okay. It, but it, but please it kinda, do it, tell it, me it, then. But it basically talks about all that you had you had said and then some. Okay. And so if you really want to like look at all the stats. Um, for the, those out there that want to, but yeah. I'll look it oh. up in a second and we'll bring it back. But I, I, w- I would love to go back to also this uh, this unity on mm. um, this basis mm. of, of essentials, yep. and then compare yep. contrast to the liberty yeah. on these non-essentials. Yeah. Uh, I had a guy once who said, "Major on the majors, minor on the minors," and it was when we were getting all these youth pastors together yeah. across the city of San Antonio to yeah. put on a Disciple Now event. Right. And we had Methodist, and we had oh, we had the whole bit, right? Sure. And this guy was very clear, like that, that he that, that we all knew what those essentials were. And I, one point, I went home and I'm like, I don't, I don't know what he means by essentials because I don't <laughs> think we would all agree. Right. So, but, but what right. are what are these the unity that we have to have if we're going to be evangelical? Yeah. What are these essentials? And then what are the things that we can say? Yeah, yeah let's be let's be loose on this one. Yeah. Well, and and see, that's I think there's a tendency. So. Th- You've really asked a question, not just about evangelicalism, but about uh, the, the larger question of, if, if we think about Christianity, how do we think of it in terms of both unity and diversity? How, how, how do we make sense of those two, in a sense, impulses, dimensions of the reality of Christianity? Jesus prayer in his final days was, of course, make them one, Father, as you and I are one. There's no question that Jesus' intention, desire, is that all those who would claim to follow him would, quote, be one. And in fact, if we if we really go into the language of the New Testament, there's a lot of language in there that, that, that would a- actually says, we are one. All right, so let's just park that for a moment. Then we go on the other side of the equation. And Christianity is an unbelievably diverse religion. Um, when you think of, you know, an, an Eastern, or, or I, I just spoke today, was talking with somebody who's, who's moved from being Southern Baptist to being chrismated in the Orthodox Church. Well, these are, and and it was very interesting because she described both what has changed in that move for her and what has stayed the same. And she was able to say, here are things that were kind of woven into me in my Southern Baptist heritage that now that I have entered the Orthodox Church, I really haven't left these things behind. Um, And... She was also able to say, here's the reason I went into the, I've entered the Orthodox Church. Uh, so we could go all over the map and just to say that um, Christianity in all its expressions as a total manifests that combination of unity and diversity. And we have to just constantly work to affirm, to celebrate, to manifest our unity. And of course, do we do it enough? No. Pretty simple 
answer. Um, if we bring this around to, to evangelical Christianity in particular, um, there are numbers of people, some of them from within evangelicalism itself, iron, irony here, who as scholars, now I'm not talking about the current societal kerfuffle over the word evangelical. I'm talking about research scholars. There are numbers of scholars who say the term evangelical, the category evangelical, is simply of no use for the purposes of scholarly understanding because of the unbelievable diversity of expressions of Christianity that get included under that, you've used the phrase big tent. There's all kinds of big tent, mosaic, tapestry. There, there's, there's 20 different metaphors and images people have used. And the reality is it is incredibly diverse. I'm not surprised that people, if I can put it this way, outside of evangelicalism don't see that, that it's just this monolithic Thing. I, I don't think that's unique, again, to evangelicals. I think most of us, if we look at any community from the outside, it, it appears to be rather monolithic and uniform. And if you get inside and you walk around, the longer you're there, whatever it is, whether it's a political party, whether it's a church, whether it's uh, a town, you begin to see shades of diversity that you didn't see from a distance. I need some clarification right here, I think. <laughs> the, okay. So the burning the burning question, you know, the flag that evangelicals wave to me <laughs> um, as an outsider now, um, I was a Nazarene for 19 years, um, although I may be circling back around to the um, evangelicals recently. So we can talk about that later. But the question is, evangelicals, you know, you can say as a scholar there's different kind of Christians, which is valid. But evangelicals focus in on are you getting in or not? Are you going to heaven? You can call yourself a Christian if you want to, but you're not saved. You're not born again. You're not sanctified. So... I'm hoping that there has been a little bit of change around that since I've been out. And I'm very curious to see what you say about mm -hmm. it. Ex you know, I had, um, I had an experience at Isla school of theology, uh, where I was in a class and the professor said, you guys know John three sixteen, And I started quoting it and everybody in the, else in the class just looked at me dumbfounded so these are methodists and lutherans they and were they were dumbfounded line. by the fact that on the spur of the moment you could recite a verse yes. of, of from the bible but partic yes. and i i thought yeah. everyone hmm. would start reciting it back to him with me but we're in a room of yeah like i said methodists and um uh, episcopals and and mainliners, and they had no idea what we were talking about. What I was talking about, or what mm, he was mm -hmm, talking about. Mm -hmm. This is Dr. De La Torre. He, mm, he was, he's an mm. ex-Baptist um, uh, minister. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Anyway, 
to me, evangelicalism is summed up in John three sixteen, da 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 da, and also. There's nothing about being born again, being sanctified, being saved in that verse. It's about belief. So mm-hmm. I, you know, you can take all of the, you can say all of these different expressions of Christianity um, have faith and belief in Christ, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yet mm-hmm. evangelicals will take that same verse and say it's not enough to have faith in Christ. I mean, it gets very who's in and who's out and. And do you have fruits of the spirit? Because that's how I can judge if you're in or you're out. And, you know, how bad was your sin? And, and this is just, I appreciate that you are recognizing other people outside of evangelicalism and in the main line and Catholics as Christian. But are you just saying that as a because scholar? We're here online. And to be polite. Right. Yeah. Because no. what I see is, no, there's only one way. And it's very particular. And that is that. Well, I'm I'm uh, I'm sorry for um, some of the experiences and interactions you've had and and listened to. And I I know these things take place. Um, and there was a there was a lot there. Let me try to just pick one or two things. Um, that was twenty years rolled into one minute. Of right, questions. right. So let me again. Let me make a general comment and then come down to it. And that is, so I I teach theology. Um, I've been a student of theology for you know we'll just leave it at decades, which doesn't make me an expert. But let's just you know I mean this is this is kind of the what I do, and these are the waters I swim in. Let me just say that. I can take any doctrine, by that I mean true doctrine, and I can use it in a way that either is life-affirming and nurturing, and I would even use language, has a redemptive thrust to it, or I can take that same doctrine and I can use it, I can apply it, if you will, in a way that is, is uh, the opposite, <laughs> that, that is not life-affirming, but is life-taking, right? So, so for, first, I think we just, and I think we have to try, it's not easy, but try to distinguish between a particular truth or concept or idea and how it's being used at the moment. Um, and do are there evangelicals who are really bad at this? Yes, there are. Um, people who say things and do things. Um, I, I, I'm not going to reveal all the details here because it'd be breaking kind of appropriate kinds of confidentiality. I'll just I'll just say that I observed the following, the following vignette, I, I witnessed it. So my, my, um, my father had died, and we were in Omaha, Nebraska, and we were having the visitation. So open casket, and you know, people are coming, friends and family, to console us, and we're there. And um, it so happened that someone else in the room found out while we were there that their 
brother had died. And, and their, their brother had been ill, so in that sense it wasn't a surprise. Well, there was uh, a relative of mine who was in that room, and uh, I, I won't say how this individual died, the person who, who died, but um, <laughs> uh, this relative of mine came up to this person, and upon learning that her brother had died, he said kind of plaintively, he said, well, uh, it just shows you that, you know, your sins will find you out. And I was breathless. I mean, I, I did, and this was, the person who said this had been a Christian for decades, and I believe they were a Christian, yes. right? This was a person who was highly literate, biblically, by that what I mean is, the Bible's, that can be another topic, but just say, knew a lot of Bible content, mm -hmm. which is different than knowing how to think biblically. Um, and, and it was, and you know, of course, the, the, the person to whom this was said, uh, not surprisingly, didn't say a word <laughs> and just turned and left the room. I, I, I say that not to be sensational, but to say that, you know, I'm well acquainted with people who can take a biblical truth or a biblical concept or a doctrine and can speak it at a time or in a way or in a tone or with an application that are, that are destructive. And that's not what the Bible is. It's not what good theology is. Good theology has what I would call a redemptive, life-affirming trajectory to it, right? So I, that may be a little bit a field, but I, I think it's important because um, I often find myself watching certain Christians in the public arena, and they say something, and I think to myself, I don't disagree with what you just said because I, I understand what's behind it, but I sure wish you wouldn't have said it the way you did or where you did or when you did or how you did. This isn't about being a hypocrite. I'm not talking about hiding what you really believe. It's, it's uh, Augustine referred to this, by the way. So, you know, from the early church, the fathers would talk about having a a redemptive application of the truth of Scripture, a redemptive application of our beliefs. And I can only, in a certain sense, kind of apologize for when anyone, and myself included, um, speaks something that may be true, but does so in a way that is not, does not have what I'd call a redemptive kind of trajectory. I think that's why um, so many people dislike evangelicals is because we we don't hear anything redemptive or you said earlier evangelicals believe that Christ is the good news but people aren't hearing that at all. When I look at my Facebook feed of the friends that I have who are still in that stream it's it's nothing that has to do with redemptive positive beliefs and it's all anti anti this anti that and i i'm not sure 
in the long run if evangelicalism can recover from that. But again, that's that's um, my experience more than your experience because you you run with a different crowd. But but the the gut level evangelical who goes to church on Sunday they they do not come across to sharing good news. <laughs> and I think um, I mean I really kind of want you to give me a definition of like three points that makes you evangelical because one of the jokes that happens a lot in our crowd is well we're we're all going to hell so at least it'll be fun there because you'll be together because we'll be together because the the i know what you're saying and i wish there were more people that treated evangelicalism the way that you do but there aren't or at least in my experience there haven't been and so that means that after being dedicated to that tradition and label for 35 years of my life. I now wrestle with the existential truth of I may go to hell if there is such a place. Um, And that's because I drink a beer once in a while um, from the tradition I come from. And I just, I, I totally respect what you're saying. I'm so grateful to have you around the table. I'm so glad you were willing to sit down with us. And I would love to replicate you into evangelicalism because it might save them. But the way that they are experienced as an outsider now, I have no hope. Hmm. Um, I don't believe that many of them would come and sit around the table with us in any honest way and not be deciding in their heads whether or not we're going to heaven or not. Hmm. Well, and, and I, don't, I don't presume to, I won't claim to represent, if you will, all evangelicals. Oh, I know, I know. I mean, so I, pre- I appreciate your, your, your gracious words, but, um, and, and I also realize, and it was, it, it might have been you or, or some others at the other night kind of set, pushed this back to me to said, in, in effect, I'm going to paraphrase, you know, kind of, you're not a typical evangelical or the people you run with aren't quote, typical evangelicals. And, and I understand, I, I think I understand what they're saying. And I also don't want to appear, you know, that, well, I'm a, I'm a real, I'm a high class evangelical when in fact, a lot of people who are evangelicals are kind of, you know, low lives no. or whatever. I, I don't want to, uh, and you're not saying that. I know. I, I don't want anybody listening to this to hear me say that. Uh, you know, I, I teach in a seminary. <clears throat> I've had a reasonably decent quality of education. I was, and, and as numbers of you have just made, given brief glimpses back into the kind of Christianity in which you were raised, I was raised in conservative evangelicalism, but I will say, not bragging, it didn't have the toxic elements of yours, or at least what I'm hearing. Let me give you an example. Um, when, when I was a kid, uh, this is history for those of you, that, but this is contemporary for my childhood. You know, when, when John Kennedy um, became a candidate for the presidency, his Roman Catholic faith was very controversial. And there were a lot of people, including conservative Protestants, who were very nervous that he'd be under the dictate of the Pope, 
right? And there was a lot of rather tense anti-Catholic sentiment. That wasn't the first time in U.S. history, but this is within my lifetime. And I can honestly say, just to give you a flavor of my house, not that it was perfect, but just to say, I never remember my parents saying an unkind word about Roman Catholics. I did not grow up in a home there where there, there was negative talk about, quote, Roman Catholics. And there were Roman Catholics in our neighborhood. One of my friends, one of my playing, a guy named Danny. You know, I know, I know they were Catholic. They had seven kids, right? We had two kids. They had seven kids, and they were Roman Catholic. Um, so just to say that, you know, I was raised in a in a what I would call a conservative strain of Protestantism, but it was not for good or ill. It was not one that was marked by um, an anti-negative kind of disposition. Right now, if I'm sure that if I would have said to my parents, you know, um, gee, why don't we go to the Roman Catholic Church? I'm sure they would have said no. <laughs> it, it's not. I'm not yeah. suggesting that they didn't disagree, but the point is, negative talk, putting down other groups, was not characteristic of my home. Um, but it was. There's no question. It was would have been in the stream of what's called conservative Protestantism or evangelical Protestantism. So uh, I, I have to say, this stream that I'm kind of describing, I don't claim that it is indicative of all quote evangelicals. I will say, I've I've kind of lived most of my life with many, many people like this around who this is their, this is their posture, if I can put it that way. Are you in a certain denomination? I am, uh, both my wife and I are elders in a denomination called the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. That's the name of the denomination. Um, and we're not in there because evangelical is in the name, uh, but, but it is in the name. And yeah, so we're both what are called probably shouldn't throw this word in. It's called ruling elder, but believe me, it's not as heavy handed as it sounds. I assure you. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, yeah. And what part of the country were you raised in? Midwest. Okay. You know, so, so uh, born and raised in Northwest suburbs of Chicago, went to college, Western suburbs of Chicago, went to seminary, northern suburbs of Chicago. So the first 30 years um, up to and into marrying my wife, meeting and us getting married, all around metro Chicago, then the East Coast for about four years, and then Canada for 10 years. So I I also have 10 years of, of kind of watching the U.S. and watching evangelicalism uh, from outside, in a sense, outside the country as well. Yeah. Hey, 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 hey. 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 Yeah. Uh, so I probably labeled myself from about 2003 as a post-evangelical, but still holding on to evangelical. A lot of that was probably because I was working for mostly evangelical institutions. But my, my growing shift, I think, uh, in transitioning from Southern Baptist as a child to evangelical to, oh, maybe I'm post-evangelical to this big tent guy. I have been called, and now this is on, being called this online is probably different than face-to-face, because I do believe that face-to-face people don't make these comments, <laughs> but I've been called a heretic, I've been called an apostate, 
I've been called a fraud and leading people astray. And those are just the nice words. Okay. And so, which is funny because I'm like, I'm trying to like, uh, I've done a lot of writing throughout the years and people don't like some of the stuff I write, but these three things specifically, and there's probably more are, one of them is affirming same-sex marriage, which was about, I'd say about five years ago, I, I finally was like, all right, you know, it was hard for me to do it, but I did it. Uh, the other one was atonement. Mm-hmm. I, I don't uh, uphold the penal substitutionary theory of atonement, which I get that it's out there. I get that there's 10,000 10, theories probably, but you know, there's a lot out there. Uh, and the other one was siding with Bernie Sanders. During, during during the primary, oh Bernie, I still love you. Uh, uh, there, there are obviously other ones, but like when it comes back, and I'm I'm still stuck on my liberty in the essentials here. Okay. Within evangelicalism, mm-hmm. I, I know people who are evangelical slash post evangelical mm-hmm. with a big tent who would say, "Yeah, I'm evangelical, and I perform same sex marriages. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't uphold the penal substitutionary theory of atonement. I'm more of a Christus Victor or Eastern Orthodox Union with God or even Girardian with the scapegoat stuff. So there's so many out there. And then Bernie Sanders, that's obviously because if Bernie is uh, pro-choice and he's pro-abortion, so Ryan, you want to kill babies. Like I've been, I've been things that I'm like, what do you, that doesn't even make sense to me. And I can't even really dialogue with people who, who do that when they just put those labels on me. So can you still be evangelical and have these those three specific things? I guess those were those were my. I guess I'm coming out and I'm not evangelical anymore. You know. Well, uh, I don't get to say who is and is not an evangelical. Oh, come on. I'll say now. I'll say more. That's all. Okay. So, uh, so evangelical. So let's go to the, you know the. The beauty of reductionism is that it's reductionism. It's simple, it's clear, it's easy to wrap your arms around. The challenge and problem with reductionism is that it's reductionism. And most of life isn't simple and clear. And the kind of issues you've raised are not, I wouldn't call them simple. Whatever else they are, they're not simple. So, so you know, last Thursday night... And, and I didn't just kind of fabricate this for Thursday night. My attempt to take many scholars of evangelicalism's definitions of it and kind of boil those down, there were three kind of three uh, affirmations, core beliefs that I, and, and values that I kind of tried to articulate. The one was the person and work of Christ. Um, and the person and work of Christ as the path of salvation. Secondly, the, this, as we talked about earlier, this not just, not, not just kind of that we can, but really a sense of we should, we need to, if you will, share this news of Jesus, this message, in both word and deed in the world beyond ourselves. And thirdly, those could be called, you could call those material principles, meaning the substance of the belief. The other is what could be called a formal principle, and that is that those beliefs that I just described, those values and principles, are believed to be grounded in the scriptures, and the scriptures are regarded as 
authoritative for the, the, the classical phrase, not just in evangelicalism, is authoritative for faith and life. So authoritative both for what we think, what we believe, and what we do, how we live. Um, so if you think about that, would it be possible to hold the beliefs, engage in the practices you described, uh, you know, and fit with those? And my, my response is, in theory and principle, it's possible. That's what I thought. <laughs> do I <Others> think <laughs> do 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 I think that those beliefs and practices would be until recently characteristic of what is usually referred to as evangelicalism? No. Right? Right. So you have just you have just described um three topics where uh, there's there's several ways to talk about it in relation to evangelicalism. There would be some people who would take those views that you described and say, these are examples of a diversification and broadening of evangelicalism. There would be others who would say, no, these constitute moving beyond the boundaries of evangelicalism because the, the argument would be um, a proper understanding of these other things would make it very difficult to hold those views. Now, I, and I have to qualify here, of, of those three that you mentioned, um, as, as colorful as it is, you know, the, the, the one with Bernie Sanders is kind of, it in some ways, um, I don't want to say secondary, but you know, it's a distinctively politically cast kind of commitment or allegiance, right? Whereas the others are more, more explicitly and directly theological. Yeah. No, no, there were reasons behind people holding their ground to why I would be uh, leading people astray with siding with Bernie Sanders based on a biblical conviction. Mm -hmm. But I would also go back with them and everything that I'd ever written, especially early on in this transition was, mm -hmm. and, and even today, like it's, it's biblical. Like I, mm -hmm. I struggled with my theology mm -hmm. before anything else to kind of Come for, I don't. I think people are very flippant and go, you know, whichever way culture is moving, they say, oh yeah, and they've never really thought these things through. And I will say, mm -hmm. I've thought these things through. I've been trained to think these things through. Mm -hmm. Thank you to evangelicalism, by the way, and a good education. So uh, the Bible is a, is, is a huge part of my ability to contextually understand the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can we, can we talk about the Bible? Is this, sure. since that's a big, this authoritative... Sure. I hope Word we of can. God. I mean, I hope. Yeah, let's. I hope my you, ignorance isn't too on display here. Do y'all want to talk about here. the Bible? As long as we're only going to talk about the King James True <laughs> Bible, <laughs> and we talk about the patriarchy. Oh my goodness! Okay, so here, here, here they all come. So, and you had said, you had said last week, and I know these ex Wesleyans who still hold on to some of this Wesleyan stuff may like this. It's the quadrilateral, which mm -hmm. he didn't coin. Somebody else later did. Mm -hmm. You would know. Mm -hmm. And uh, when it comes to scripture, scripture is this this base that we go to, mm -hmm. but you also have reason and you have experience and you have tradition. And I would add yes. commu community yes. probably as well would be a part of that. I, I add a fifth one. Why not? Because we, sure. we live I, in, yeah. in my mind. Well, depending <laughs> yeah. on the community you have in view, I yeah. see tradition as an expression of that. But okay. Okay. That's, that's fine. Uh, sure. 
so and that is to 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 unpack biblical truth and and even just just tr- whether it's capital T or small T contextual truth. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the Bible, it is this ginormous book, this mm-hmm. library yes. written in different eras by different yes. people yes. in different times. Yes. So when we say the authoritative word of God, inspired by God, is is how we access truth and engage the world. Uh, I don't even. It's it's hard to get people who haven't studied the Bible at all Correct. to understand that. So the minute you throw the Bible in someone's lap who has no historical, I mean, I'm not even talking about Greek and Hebrew. I'm I'm just talking about basic history. Um, it's kind of dangerous. I mean, maybe the Catholics were right. Leave it out of the hands of the people before the Reformation, because you know. Hey, I, I know. I love the Reformation. I love. I, I'm a pro, I'm a protesting Protestant, but you know what happened with within Protestantism, as we know it, we we splintered, mm-hmm. and and now there's so many different flavors of Protestants and evangelicals, and how many thousands of denominations based on the authoritative Word of God. So uh, I'm unpacked of a can of worms here, and I'd love for you all to jump in. Um, but how they do we, have the Holy Spirit, Ryan? How do how do we how do we even begin to to say who has who has the last word on this final word? Well, uh, I haven't done this yet, but for those who might listen to this, if the question you've raised, if they really do want to kind of sink their teeth into grappling with it, uh, a book that was published last fall might be of interest to, to you'd have to be a geek probably to really like the book, but it's, it's a book by a guy by the name of Kevin Van Hooser, V-A-N-H-O-O-Z, or Z for our Canadian brethren, uh, E-R. And the title of the book is, and you'll hear just in the title, Biblical Authority After Babel. Um, Biblical Authority After Babel. And just, I won't distill the book here, but just to say that it's a rather extended treatment of the kind of the challenge against Protestants of saying the Reformation unleashed this unregulated, uh, divisive, fragmented stream of Christianity um, because of its view of this thing called sola scriptura. So it's a, it's a book that engages that, that matter. Um, so I think that... Um, I think we have to, this is where I have to recognize, first of all, the Bible isn't, when, when Christians use words like divinely inspired or authoritative, they are not saying, well, again, at, at their best, <laughs> they're not saying that it doesn't need to be interpreted. And, and so uh, I would say at the seminary, if I'm thinking now on this, as I think about the way we um, help people kind of enter into seminary studies. One of the probably the if you had the kind of the the top five big ideas that become very important to kind of introduce to people with the idea, not that they suddenly understand it, but that you need to be aware of this because this reality is something you're going to have to work on your whole time here. And one of those things is the Bible is always interpreted. There is no such thing as an uninterpreted reading of the Bible. I have a very vivid 
um, a very vivid uh, vignette in my mind uh, when I was in Canada uh, on the faculty of a small seminary. We had a faculty position in Old Testament that was open. We had a candidate come to town. The candidate was in town over the weekend. And so I was kind of this candidate's host for Sunday. So the idea was we would go to two churches in town to help this fellow get a feel for the kind of, you know, the church landscape relative to our seminary. So um, this is someone who had just finished a PhD in Semitic, which is fancy word, just think Old Testament studies at Harvard. And we're sitting in church, and the pastor gets up to preach, and about a third of the way into the sermon, the pastor says, literally, uh, believe me, this is a quote I, I will never forget. And the pastor said, in the midst of this sermon, by the way, um, I don't interpret the Bible for you. When I preach, I simply tell you what it says. Well, this fellow's head kind of swiveled toward me, and I thought, I am looking straight ahead. I am not making eye contact. Um, and and when we're walking out to the parking lot after church, and he says, "So was this typical?" You know, so so are there people who are? And I would say naive. I don't see it as ill in, ill intentioned. I really see it as I, I I regard it as naivete, and I don't want to sound elitist when I use that word, but I really think it's naive that they somehow associate because this is the Bible. And because it's God's word, which it, it, you know, I believe it. It is God. I believe it is God's word. I believe it's inspired. I've got all kinds of adjectives I could use that non-Christians might think are just crazy. But the point is, it's a book. It's a unique, I believe it's a unique book, but it's a book. And as such, and this is, this is God's doing. <laughs> this is God's doing. This isn't, theologians don't make this complication. God chose to reveal himself in a variety of ways. Those of us who believe in the inspiration of the Bible, the scripture, we believe that one of the ways he chose to reveal himself was through these writings. They are writings in conventional human language. They're not some heavenly language. They're not some unknown language. In the time and place in which we were written, they were several languages which were known to people of that time. They weren't, in that sense, unusual. And part of what comes with that is it needs to be interpreted. Now, I have to tell you, there are days when I hear sermons or I hear people say things and appeal to the Bible, and I think to myself, God, why did you make it so that it wasn't self-interpreting? Why didn't you make why didn't you just take all this and imprint it on the inside of our cranium where there could be no possibility that we'd screw it up, that we'd misunderstand it? The reality is the Bible has to be interpreted. Um, so I, I I just think that may be a little bit long on that. But I think it's very important for people to know that for what I think are thoughtful Christians, they're aware that it needs to be interpreted. And of course, that said, people do that with varying degrees of skill. And different approaches to interpretation are part, not all, part of the reason for different 
if you will, traditions of Christianity. So just to pick two simple ones to illustrate it. When a Pentecostal picks up the Bible and reads it, they are coming to it with a very different set of what we can call pre-understandings, certain basic beliefs that are quite different than when a typical, if I can use that word, Lutheran picks up the Bible and reads it. And nobody comes neutral, including the critics. They aren't neutral. Nobody's neutral. So part of what we need to do, and this is only a partial now coming around to your question, but part of it is we all need to be very aware of what those pre-understandings are that we're, if you will, bringing to the text because they have influence in what we then will see in the text, what we will draw from the text, right? And that is, and then I'll, I'll stop here on this point, say, given what I've just said, there is a growing awareness, and I'm not saying it's a tidal wave, but there is a growing kind of percolating awareness within many evangelical circles that we have undervalued, um, we have underestimated the importance of reading the Bible as a book of the church. And here we're back to that individual corporate tension. God didn't give me the Bible. God gave the Bible to his people, and I am among them, but it's not my book. And I'd better not just read it for myself with my ideas. I need to be part of something larger. Um, I am part of something larger, and I need to have a, a frame of reference that's informed by that larger reality. Um, so that's, I would say that that's a, 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 a I, I'm not saying it's characteristic of the majority of evangelicals. I will say this is a growing awareness. And I, I see it as, for lack of a better, kind of one of the growing edges of evangelicalism. So since the word hasn't come through yet, um, can you just give us a comment on the whole inerrancy idea right. and its place in this whole discussion? Sure, sure. Um, so let me just offer, and you know, you could work on definitions, but I'll give you a, a, a simple version of what I think inerrancy rightly understood means. What it means, what it affirms is that the Bible is completely truthful in everything that it teaches. The Bible is completely truthful in everything it teaches. What's the immediate question that follows that? What is truth? Okay. What does it teach? What does it teach? And what is that question? We're back, where are we? Interpretation, right? But, but, but understand that inerrancy isn't a theory of interpretation. It is simply an affirmation 
about the character or the quality of the Bible. So in some of the more elaborate definitions, you'll have people say things like, when the Bible is properly interpreted, it, it, it communicates truth or it is truthful in what it says. So now, again, the whole question of, so what does it teach? Well, we're now in the realm of interpretation. And that's reflected, so just um, without going down memory lane too far, when I was in seminary, the, you know that theological issues and topics, they ebb and flow. And it's hard for us to realize around this table, but the hot topics that everybody's talking about and can't get away from today, I'm, I'm quite certain they will not be the hot topics 20 years from now, maybe not 10 years from now. And that doesn't mean that what we're talking about today isn't important. It just means part of the reality of history, there's an ebb and a flow to things. When I was in seminary, it was the era of what some people call the battle for the Bible. That was one of the phrases used, pulling it off of a book that was written. The battle for the Bible. And the battle for the Bible was over the mat, centered around inerrancy. So let's just say there were several years of battle. <laughs> and there were scholars battling, and there were churches battling, and it isn't that everybody eventually agreed, but we kind of move beyond that battle and, in a sense, agreed to disagree. And everybody on the respective sides went their own way. But I say that to say this. You know what the next issue became? Hermeneutics, or that's the fancy word, that's a $10 word for biblical interpretation. So if we just look at the flow of debate in the case of of particularly within evangelicalism, in the 1970s, inerrancy, it was all about the authority of the Bible and inerrancy. Once that was, it, and there was this kind of unpeaceable truce drawn, very shortly after, in the 80s, it was all about hermeneutics. And, and you could go to conferences, and, you, and, and the, all the discussion were about you know, hermeneutics. How do you interpret the Bible? Those are, those are um, that's an inescapable question. Monica talked about truth, which I think is another issue that evangelicals face in common culture right now in the U.S., starting in the 60s, the idea that there was one truth, a Judeo-Christian truth, was starting to be rejected. And coming up to my generation and my children's generation, there's not a lot of belief that there's a core truth anymore. It's so, there's so much individualism that truth isn't, it's just not perceived like it used to be, but evangelicals still hold on to the, a firmer definition. So that's another battle I think they face. Yeah. I don't really, I don't know that I need to add. I think you've right, you've rightly identified one of the tension points. Um, And of course, in its most, in its most radical form, and I don't mean radical in a pejorative way, but just descriptive, uh, what you've just described, you know, the, the most radical expression of this is somebody who says something like the following, and, and this isn't necessarily about Christianity, not Christianity, this is any belief. My truth is my truth, your truth is your truth. Um, and you could be talking politics, you could be talking philosophy, you could talk cosmology, religion, whatever. But that, that kind of an understanding of, it's, it's two things, it's a two-sided coin. The nature of truth 
and the human ability or lack thereof to know truth, to understand truth. Um, and I, I will say, I think there's a lot of people who aren't quite as tolerant as they want to, as they think they are. In other words, I think there's a lot of people who would, might give the line, well, your truth, your truth, my truth, my truth. But if, if somebody else's tr truth <laughs> starts impinging on mine, I'm not going to respond very kindly to that, right? So uh, this is a, a, I think you've, You've identified a very significant question for even beyond evangelicalism, but I think you're right that evangelicals don't think that there's a kind of an infinitely individualized proliferation of truth. We've talked about that concept of tolerance. It, for those of us who've left a certain kind of Christianity, mm. we we fight within ourselves to still tolerate people who are in that stream. Mm. That that's yeah. just a it's something we fight because we've moved on, and and it's a human nature to think, you know, well we're right obviously, and they're still left behind. So yeah. that whole I completely agree with you on that tolerance idea that that uh, some of the people who think they're most tolerant are actually very intolerant. Yeah, my, 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 dad, uh, my dad smoked quite heavily for 20 years. He was a two-pack-a-day man. And he eventually, he eventually dropped it. But I remember him saying, I remember this as a kid, he said to me, the most obnoxious people are, are ex-smokers. Uh, and and he, was, he was saying that as an ex smoker, right? Uh, he, he was self-aware enough to know, and, you know. That, yeah, that can probably anyhow, be said of some of us ex-evangelicals. No. <laughs> you know. One of the things I, I do appreciate about my educational background, thing, and thanks to you and many others at Denver Seminary, was that that was, for me, the first moment outside of college, because college was its own thing, sure. of an, sure. a, a larger tent evangelicals cannot be categorized, categorized into one sort of like, here's this is what they are. Like, you know, the stereotypes that we've been talking about and even that have come back online. And so and you were saying back, back in your day, it was like this biblical interpretation, hermeneutics mm -hmm. debate. And mm -hmm. now it's like people, evangelicals don't, for the most part, don't really worry about that as much, even though they, they want to define their truth. But it's, um, in my, in my time, it was open theism mm -hmm. and right. predestination. Right. Well, now, right. now you have, open theist uh, evangelicals and those who have always been, you know, those who are more reformed and Calvinist in their ways of thinking. Uh, and, and then lately it's become, let's go back to the one that I keep getting people buzzing me about this, asking about, people are at, telling me to ask you about this. Uh, <laughs> about how, I don't know if that's uh, good or no, bad. I don't, I don't know. You, you, you can decide. But uh, as of late, it's, it's been about the afterlife. And now you have evangelicals who are, have, have more of a, a Bardian, Karl Barth, yeah. even though he never said it, yeah. it's in there, view of, sal view of salvation, or Gregory of Nyssa, or even Origen, going back to the, you know, a church father who was, well, well, that's another conversation for another day. Right. But you have people now saying, well, th this is in the tradition. Yeah. Um, and so my question is always going to be, is there always going to be something within this hermeneutical approach? Uh. Because these issues 10 years ago, like heaven and hell, um, evangelicals would have a very firm stance. And most still do. Most still do. Uh, yeah. Even though they would interpret the afterlife in nuances yeah. and, that are... I, I, I don't want to minimize what you're saying. 
I, I, I think we do have to keep in mind that there's really, and, and I don't want to trivialize this, there really is nothing new under the sun. Um, if we look closely enough at the history of Christianity, and, and Christianity, for example, I mean, again, we can, we can do this in politics, we can do this in philosophy, there's, there's very little being said today about anything that's truly de novo new. So many uh, things that are said today that are seem to be new are just that they seem to be new. Um, that doesn't mean people are always consciously aware that what they're saying, they're not the first ones to say it. it it's not claiming that when they do say it, it's just Carbon copy, which I realize is an image that doesn't work anymore. Clone, a cloned, a cloned duplicate uh, of of what went before. But it it it's whether they know it or not, it's a variation on a theme, if if I can put it that way. So uh, I confess that because my kind of secondary field or field of secondary interest is is history, I can't help but always be mindful of how little there is that is truly new, right? And and in my case, uh, now this this is beyond evangelicalism. I think new is overrated. <laughs> I really think new is overrated. New in our culture is synonymous with better. So there's an evaluative character to new. When you, that, that's why marketers in the grocery store, you can walk down the aisle and you'll see a little star in a package and it'll just say new. That's all it'll say. Why, why can that be used as a marketing strategy? Well, because in our culture... And this is our culture. It's not been this way through all eternity. Um, that word communicates, oh, better. Yeah. Well, in fact, all it means is different. And there's, there's differences that are good, and there are differences that are bad, right? But in our, the, the wiring of our culture, the air of our culture, it's, it's this, and, and Americans are on steroids on this, um, Pro, this this myth of progress and improvement and always better and restlessness when in fact um, globally and historically new has typically been associated with something that's suspect right so and and don't mishear me here I'm not advocating we retreat um, I as I'm I don't know if I mentioned this the other night one of the images, I always bring to my mind is, I don't know if any of you have gone to these uh, like early colonial America reenactment, you know, historical sites. And one of the most chilling things to look at are the pedal driven dental drills. And I think, oh my word, I am so glad that I live in the, you know, the late 20th, the early 21st century, uh, that I don't have somebody pedaling as fast as they can to try to turn the dental. I, I'm all for progress. I'm all for improvement. That said, I think we're kidding ourselves if we somehow associate novelty and newness in an uncritical way with better. And, and I, I think that's true, of, frankly, of theology, among other, other things. 
Oh, I just wanted to give you a chance to give some positive PR to evangelicals. We've been throwing so much shade around the table, but, you know, I personally, there's so many things to appreciate about evangelicals and about the way I grew up that I feel so passionately grateful for, um, like these very simple morals of not lying and cheating, you know, of God is love, um, the community that I felt there, you know, the just genuine warmth. I think evangelicals are seekers. I think mm -hmm. they seek this personal relationship with God and they're very intentional and passionate mm -hmm. about it. Um, mm. what would mm. you like to say about it? Oh my. <laughs> well, first of all, I, I have to say, and truly, I mean, there, there hasn't been any hostility. Uh, I haven't heard or sensed any hostility around this table. Um, I'm not saying that can't happen. I'm just saying, uh, I, 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 just to be very clear to anybody listening to this, I, I've sensed none of that. Um, and, and, you know, many, many of the things you shared come out of your own personal experiences. And, and those are significant and need to be honored and, and need to be, if you will, uh, em embraced and addressed kind of squarely, you know, not denied, not rash, not explained away. So I would never try to explain to you, well, you really misunderstood. You know, the, the, the context you came from, it really wasn't legalistic. Um, I, I, I believe what you have described. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry that it's been that way, and I know that it, it's that way in other places. Um, I, yeah, I want, I don't, uh, that's a very kind invitation. I'll, I'll mention a few things that I think to people, if I can put it this way, people outside of evangelicalism, all they know of it is what they've seen and heard in the last two years or so. I think they'd probably be surprised to see the number of example hospitals and medical mission endeavors that are not uh, services provided only to Christians, but medical mission teams for, for, cent for decades, if not longer, who have gone both in the United States and in various places overseas and provided medical care. Started schools. Um, uh, in, in Africa, the number of leaders that were educated in, you know, in Christian schools. Now, I can immediately hear, I'm, I'm well aware of, of the criticisms that will be pushed back about imperialism and cultural, you know, cultural genocide. No, I, I'm not naive about those kinds of phenomenon, and I'd say, probably not surprisingly, there's truth there and there's exaggeration there both. I think a really sober look at this um, so what, what evangelicals have done in education, in medical care, frankly, in, in social justice. I mean, um, the, the ending of legal slavery in the United States, I'm not talking about the culture of slavery, not talking about equal rights all the way through yet, but if you look at what happened in the Civil War, um, a fascinating book, painful and encouraging both, book written by a historian named Mark Knoll on preaching during the Civil War, mid-19th century America. And he looks at that preaching from the perspective both of the United States and the way Europeans viewed it. And the truth is, you can find 
preachers who stood in the pulpit and used the Bible to defend slavery. And you can find evangelicals in the pulpit preaching and advocating and lobbying for the end of slavery. Um, and and the, the traditions, and I will also say this as a Presbyterian, <laughs> the Presbyterians weren't at the front of these lines. It was, in fact, the Methodist tradition and many of the holiness traditions. They have been there. Where have the, where have the first... Um, the, the first ordination of women in America, it came out of evangelical movements. It was actually Wesleyan churches. They were the first ones to ordain women. Okay, but we need to put a footnote there. Okay. Add it. Because just because you ordain women doesn't mean you create a culture, an environment, or oh. a system that actually helps women do what they're called to do. Sorry. Oh, well, you have to be sorry. No, that, that is true. And, and that's why I'm a little nervous in the invitation to tell us the good stuff because I realize this good stuff is carried out in an imperfect world and, and there's, there's undertoes and there's incompleteness and there's all kinds of things. And what you raise is, yes, that's true. I'm familiar with denominations that on paper, right, on paper will affirm women in ministry. The numerical reality, you look, you think, no, uh, it, it's, a, it's a little bit, this is a bad analogy, I suppose, but the, the dynamic you're pointing to, I think this notion of culture, um, don't get me going on guns. I'll simply say, I wish, I wish that passing the right laws would significantly alter the way guns are used in the United States. I wish. And I'm not minimizing the importance of laws. I think we're absolutely naive if we think that what we're witnessing and experiencing can be legislated away somehow. There's a whole culture and ethos, and it's more prevalent in some parts of the country than other, but it's everywhere. And so this, the, the distinction between law or policy or principle and what can only be called culture, right, is an important one. That's an important one. That was a lot tonight. Thank you all so much. This was great. So by the way, I did find this book. It's The New Christendom, and you've probably read it. Philip Jenkins. I, I know of Jenkins' work. That, Jenkins. that one I have not read. The Coming so of Global I mean, Christianity. The third edition, by the way. Any, anything, Lots of footnotes. I, I would say, I, I would just say anything he writes is worth reading. I'm I, not saying he's right on everything, but his books yeah, are worth it, reading. To me, it, it came across as a very objective. And yeah, it was, mm. it's more of a, mm. yeah, I would mm. say an academic piece to a degree. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's still readable mm -hmm. for sure. Not something you want to read late at night. Uh, it is getting later. So for us who are recording right now, so thank you all for listening. Uh, I'm actually curious. Like, what are you, what are you working on right now? Before we leave, working what, on yeah. What do you anything out there for the people um, of the interwebs? Well, I'm I I continue to work on uh, something called theologies of retrieval, which are theologies that look back to historical reference points to then draw on those for contemporary constructive use. So not just 
repeating history, but thinking creatively and constructively from our current context, how the wisdom of the church of the past can inform that. That's one stream. Um, and I'm, I'm working on, there's a, there's a phrase that's, that's, there's a way of conceptualizing the story of the Bible that, that has kind of risen to some prominence in recent years, and it's called the grand narrative. So the story, what's the story of the Bible? It's kind of four chapters, and there's a three-chapter version, there's a six-chapter version, but I work with the four-chapter, which is simply creation, fall, redemption, culmination. And, um, and, and this framework is actually undergirding evangelical, contemporary evangelical initiatives in creation care or what some people call ecological environmentalism. Um, it's also informing people who are engaged in various forms of social justice. Um, and uh, then also a, a slightly different arena called faith and work, where people who are trying to connect the dots between their faith, their Christian faith, and what they do every day, not just Sunday, but what they do every day. And all three, and, and this I've the, the, the writing isn't done, but the research, most of it is there. And this way of thinking, creation, fall, redemption, culmination, is kind of the theological framework that is actually motivating and guiding people in those arenas. So that's one of the places I'm spending my time. Thanks for being with us. And can people find you anywhere outside of Denver Seminary? Are you are you online? Or are I you am, are you not a Facebooker? I am not on Facebook. I don't Twitter. I, uh, I I'm sure I've so. Uh, but uh, my I don't know if you can put the my email address at Denver Seminary. If you just go to the website for Denver Seminary. And you go to the faculty. My last name is Bushhart, B-U-S-C-H-A-R-T. That'll get you there. Yep. So I still read email. I know that's old school. I still read email. Thank you again. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. Cheers.